It's a privilege to be able to study God's Word together. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. This will be our last message from Luke for a little while. Next week, we're going to start 1 Corinthians. So if you want to prepare during the week, you can start reading the first part of 1 Corinthians. But today we're finishing the chapter, chapter 13 of Luke. Well, in my house, uh, my, my younger kids enjoy watching this simple cartoon that features a little girl who goes on adventures with her friend. Before they leave on the adventure, they check the map. The map tells them where they need to go. It gives them simple instructions. Usually there's three landmarks that will guide their way to their destination. It's something like waterfall, apple tree, blue mountain. And they say it over and over so much that it sticks in your head even if you don't want it to. Waterfall, apple tree, blue mountain. And uh, this method seems to help the characters as they go through their adventure to remember the path that they're on and what their destination is. And it helps the kids watching to also remember what they're doing. It's a great way to remember and to be reminded of what's coming next, what they're looking for, and what the plan is. In a a similar way, we can see from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has a mission and a plan and a purpose, and it's always on his mind. He's focused on what he's doing. He runs a similar script in his mind. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Go to Jerusalem. Die for sinners. This is his focus and his mission. Along the way, though, he gets interrupted. We've seen already multiple times how Jesus is interrupted by the crowd. Someone shouts out a question. Or someone comes along that needs to be healed. So Jesus compassionately is interrupted. He he gets these interruptions and he answers questions. He heals people. He sees these interruptions as a way to teach his disciples and to those listening. So he uses them as opportunities. He teaches about salvation. Who is going to be saved? And then the design of the salvation plan. As we're going to see today, Jesus talks more about who it is that's saved and also that the salvation plan that he is executing, the mission that he is on, started way before he was born in Bethlehem. It started at the beginning of time. So keep this in mind as we read Luke 13, 22 to 35. Follow along as I read. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, You will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came up and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Well, the main message, the big idea of this passage today is that the mission of Jesus has always been to save people from every nation. We're going to take the passage in two pieces. The first will be 22 to 30 and then 30 to 35. So the first section, verses 22 to 30, and point number one is Jesus' plan from the beginning has been to save people from every place, people from everywhere. This section starts with Luke reminding us that Jesus is traveling toward Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 9 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is when he became determined to go, and we see that determination through this passage. He's going from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. And then we see an interruption here in verse 23. Someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He's wondering about the people that will be saved. Is it only a few people? Maybe he thinks that the requirements for salvation are quite strict. It seems that maybe it's difficult for some to be saved. So does that mean only a few will? Now for the crowd who was with Jesus, most or all of them would have been Jewish. They were children of Israel. And they would have understood, or at least many would have thought, that salvation was guaranteed to them because they were Jewish, because of their genealogy or their heritage. They may have thought that, oh, that, that salvation would come to them because they were part of God's chosen race. But Jesus has been challenging this thinking. We've seen this throughout Luke, that Jesus is telling them that it's a matter of the heart, not of genealogy, not of their ancestors or their nationality. So maybe this man was thinking along these lines and thought, well, if only some of the, if the Jews are the only ones saved, but only some of them, then who's included in that? So let's look at how Jesus answers this question. In typical Jesus fashion, he does not answer the question directly. Many times when people ask him questions, he answers a different question, it seems. And he does the same thing here. He really tells them what they need to hear, not necessarily what they're asking. So in verse 24, he's, he gives a parable, a picture of what is to explain this, to answer. He gives this picture, this parable of a door and a house. The door is very narrow. And we see in verse 25 that at some point the door will be shut. And notice in 24, I'm sorry, in 20, uh, 25, when he talks about who is, who is there, he says, when the master of the house has risen, he shut the door, and he says, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door. And then the master will answer you. So he uses the word you. He doesn't say some, or he doesn't say some people. He says you. It's directly talking to the person asking the question and to the people who are listening. This is to the Jewish people. 
It's not somebody else. If he had said some or they or others, then they could have assumed it meant Gentiles. It meant those who are already on the outside. But he's talking about the people who think they're on the inside, they're actually the ones on the outside. In verse 25, Jesus says, I do not know where you come from. And then he says the same thing again in verse 27. But before that, in verse 26, look there. He says, uh, the people say, those on the outside say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. So this reveals that the master of the house that Jesus is talking about is Jesus himself. He's the one who's interacting with them, eating and drinking with them. He's teaching in their streets. So we see that Jesus is this master of the house. And then in 27, when they're asking, they're, they're trying to make their case, they're defending themselves to say, we ate and drank with you, we saw you in our towns. Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. The second time he said that. And then he says, depart from me. He says, you must leave. And then he calls them workers of evil. Well, what seems to be their problem? What is the issue with them getting in? Well, it appears that it seems like that they assumed their salvation was secure. They thought they were fine because they were part of God's chosen race. They were part of Israel. They were Jews. And they thought that because they ate at the same table as Jesus, that they heard him speak in their streets. They had some proximity. They were physically close to Jesus. He was next to them at some point. In the same area of Jesus. But that was not enough. We see that they're still on the outside. That's not enough. They have not entered through the narrow door. Jesus shows that they are mistaken by assuming their salvation. This is a warning for all of us. All of us should not assume our salvation. You are a Christian today. Have you entered through the narrow door? Are you on that path? Are you striving to enter through the narrow door? The narrow door means faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Our salvation comes from believing in Jesus, putting our faith in Him and in Him alone. It's not doing good works. It's not coming to church and listening to the music and singing and listening to a sermon. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. And that is the only way. That is the narrow door. Kids, if you're listening today, and I hope you are, you should pay attention to this part. Because if you have Christian parents, it does not guarantee that you are a Christian. Kids, your salvation is not dependent on your parents' faith. It's dependent on your own. And that goes for all of us. We cannot depend our salvation or assume our salvation because our parents are Christians, because we have friends who are Christians. No, the narrow door is, is wide enough for one person. It's not a group of people that go through together. This narrow door is the width of one person. We are personally responsible It is individual that we must take into account. So being a Christian is based on each person's belief. Do not assume that you are are saved, but strive to enter through the narrow door by putting your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Jesus continues to talk about what it means to be on the outside. What is it like on the outside? Verse 28, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a horrible place. The pain there is so bad, the teeth are pressed together in uncontrollable force. That's how bad it is. 
the pain on the outside, the separation for eternity away from God is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He goes on to say that this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, they experience when they see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets are in the kingdom of God, but they are left out. They are on the outside. The people that Jesus lists here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, they believed in God's redemptive plan. They knew that God was going to send a Savior, and they believed that God would save them. However, the people here are believing that their salvation is based on their relation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their genealogy, because they're in the Jewish race. Now verse 29, it says, the people, And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So here we see where people come from. Earlier, Jesus says twice, I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you come from. But here he says people will come from east and west and from north and south. He knows where these people come from. And he says that they will enter in. They will believe. So this this faith, we are included in those people. We come from east and west related to Jerusalem and from north and south. We come from all over. Praise God that we are included in that and that He has opened up salvation for people like us. And then verse 30, He says, Behold, some who are last will be first, some who are first will be last. This is for those who are listening who think that they will be first. Maybe because they are part of the nation of Israel. And they think that they are chosen by God and they are assuming their salvation, but actually they will be last. And Jesus is helping them understand that their status on earth does not guarantee their status in the kingdom of God. So one question that arises from this passage is, does this say that God is going to reject people who want to be saved? It says in verse 24, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So does that mean that there are people who want to be saved and God says no? Well, we need to look more at this passage and also think about other parts of Scripture. So the answer to that is no. God does not reject those who want to be saved. God is not telling someone who wants to be saved, no. This rejection that comes, the door being closed, happens at death, at the end of time. So this happens after there has been opportunity to be saved. This, this parable takes place at the end times. So when we die, or when Jesus comes back again, that is when the door shuts. So as long as someone is alive, as long as they are breathing, breathing, they have opportunity to be saved. But the door does shut. There is a time where there is not opportunity. We will not leave this life. We will not die and enter eternity and then have a choice. Our choice is what we do with Jesus now. Do we believe in Him now, or do we reject Him? So for us today, as we listen closely to Jesus' words, I see that there's two ways that we can live out this passage. The first one is to do the hard work of a disciple. It's to do the hard work of a disciple. This is where verse 24 comes in. It says, strive to enter through the narrow door. We compare that to verse 26 where the people said, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. It's very passive. 
They're sitting at the table. They're maybe listening, standing in the street and listening. But Jesus says to strive. We should not assume that we're fine, but we should strive. As followers of Jesus, we should strive. Striving means to work. It's working, pushing toward a goal, pressing on. And our goal is to be faithful and dedicated disciples, faithful followers of Jesus. Some of the hard work of, dis- of being a disciple, some of the hard work of a disciple means confessing our sin to one another. First, confessing it to God, and then confessing to people that we know we have hurt, going to them and saying, it was wrong of me to do this. Will you please forgive me? And then we confess our sin to brothers and sisters who can keep us accountable, who can listen to us and pray for us. That's doing the hard work of a disciple. It means opening up, being honest. Another way that we do the hard work of a disciple is by getting up earlier. Getting up half an hour, an hour earlier in the morning and spending time reading the Bible and praying. That's hard work. We want to sleep. We need sleep. Research tells us we need to sleep, but the Bible tells us we need God. So doing the hard work of a disciple looks like getting up earlier so that we can make sure we can spend time with the Lord. Another way of doing the hard work of a disciple is by giving up on things of the world. Maybe not going for drinks with co-workers in the evening, but instead going to a Bible study during the week. There are many Bible studies that members of our church put on that are involved with during the week. So if you're interested, please talk to, to one of the other members of WSBC. Talk to me. I can get you connected with a Bible study. But do the hard work of a disciple by giving up on some of those things in order to choose the good thing, spending time in God's Word with other believers. Now another way that we live out this passage, the first one was to do the hard work of a disciple. The second one is to seek to disciple others. So when we strive to enter through the narrow door, we also want to bring along others as they strive to enter through the narrow door. As faithful disciples, we're called by Jesus to make other disciples. We want to seek to make and to teach disciples about God and His Word. We want to help people along in their walk with Jesus. Discipling sounds like a big word. It sounds like you need a degree or maybe some training or uh, some, lots of maturity in order to do. But discipling is just showing up. Discipling is telling people about Jesus and then helping them grow in their relationship with Him. So for Christians here, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? If you're not discipling anyone, if you're not helping other people grow in their relationship with Jesus, then start today. Find someone that you can meet with and talk to. Share about what you're reading in the Bible. As you get up early, as you do the hard work of being a disciple, share that with other people, with someone else. Discipling can seem scary because it takes some effort and it takes some time. But we, we want to depend on God for the strength and the courage and the discipline to follow through. God has called us to this, and it's also a joy to be a part of. So the key is to find someone who is similar to you or maybe not as far along in their faith as you are. It could be somebody that's someone that's not a believer yet, but maybe interested in learning about the Bible and about Jesus. Meet with them. Read a gospel together and talk about what the scripture means. If you need help in knowing how to disciple, how do you get started? 
You can talk to me. You can talk to Luke. There's also a book on the book table called Discipling. It's blue. It's a small blue book. It's a great book for understanding and learning about discipling. So we should do the hard work of a disciple, confessing our sins, spending time with the Lord. And also, as we do the hard work of a disciple, we want to seek others to be discipling. We want to disciple others. And we do that all in light of knowing that God has chosen to save people from all places, from all nations, from all over. Now that brings us to our second point, the next section of our passage. Here we see that God's salvation plan was the the purpose from the beginning. Point number two is the purpose from the beginning. Let's look at verse 31. It says, At that very hour some Pharisees came up and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So in 31, we see the the Pharisees rush up and they warn Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. I'm not sure if this is a real threat or if they were trying to intimidate him or scare him or have some kind of control or if this really was true. It's very possible that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Herod is the one who arrested John the Baptist and then later had John the Baptist beheaded. So Herod was a real threat. We know from other passages that Herod was the ruler over the region of Galilee where Jesus has been. It did not include Jerusalem, but he apparently spent much of his time or much time in Jerusalem. Later in Luke 23, when Jesus is on trial, Herod is in Jerusalem. And he actually appears before Herod during that time, before he's condemned to die by Pilate. So Herod is in Jerusalem. So it seems that from Jesus' response here, avoiding Herod, running away from Herod, would mean going away from Jerusalem. Because Jesus is focused on going to Jerusalem. It's his plan from the beginning. So Jesus replies in verse 32. He calls Herod a fox. He says, go tell that fox. And then the the message is basically, I'm doing my work now and tomorrow, and I'm going to bring it to completion. There is nothing that's going to stand in my way of me completing the work that I have prepared to do. Notice he says, on the third day. I don't think it's coincidence that he says just the third day. I think he's pointing to the third day when he will rise. He knows that he will rise on the third day after his death. And that that is what is the testimony. That shows that he has finished the course. He has paid the debt for sin and set the captives free. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem where he's going to die and raise again on the third day. He calls Herod a fox. A fox is typically shrewd or cunning meaning that they know how to manipulate and work people to get what they want or they need. But he's saying even Herod, being so smart and crafty, cannot keep Jesus from completing his mission, completing the course. Then in verse 33, he says again, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. And notice what he says at the end of verse 33. He says, For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It is important that he go to Jerusalem, and that is where he dies. Now, in verse 34, he shifts from talking to Herod to now talking to Jerusalem. 
Let's read 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says twice here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says Jerusalem twice, and then he talks about how they are a, they're an ungrateful and hard-hearted city. They've had prophets sent to them, and they kill them, and they stone them. They're against the help of God. And even Jesus says, I would have gathered you as again as a hen gathers her brood. The brood is her chicks. So think of a mother bird spreading her wings to cover her chicks. They would come close to her and she would protect them with her wings. But why doesn't he do that? The last part of 34 says, you were not willing. They rejected God's purpose and God's work in their lives. Jesus had the desire, but they rejected him. Notice how Jesus feels about Jerusalem. This is how he feels about his people. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a way to talk to someone you love. You don't say that to the Didi driver. You say that to someone you love. And that describes his desire for them and his love for them. He's been wanting to gather them, to bring them in, and for them to be his people. And notice, it's not just since, he's been, since he was born in Bethlehem. No, this is, this is continual. This is for, for so long. This points back to the Old Testament and the work of God to, to bring his people and to protect them and to love them. This lament here of Jesus is very personal. When the prophets were killed and those who were sent to Jerusalem were stoned, that was a direct assault on God. That was God's representative. They weren't just rejecting those men, they were rejecting God. The Old Testament speaks of God's people as his bride, his wife. And she repeatedly rejects her husband and goes to other men. So Jesus has experienced the rejection by those he loves. Have you experienced rejection by people you love? Maybe you feel rejected by your parents. Maybe by a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Some here have been divorced and probably feel rejected by their spouse who left them. Friends, our God understands this rejection. He can relate because He's been rejected by those He loves. So when you feel rejected, look to Jesus for comfort and for peace. He understands that rejection. We see that as he calls Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And we see his desire to bring them in. But his desire does not change. He still has that desire. He's still going to Jerusalem, this time to die, in order to bring his people to himself. Now verse 35, Jesus finishes his speech to Jerusalem. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken. This is a reference to multiple times in Isaiah and Jeremiah, which speak about the time when the people of Israel was, were sent into exile. 
God allowed the surrounding nations to come in and destroy Jerusalem and to carry off the people into slavery. This was a terrible time for Jerusalem and all of Jewish history. This is probably the low point in their history when Jerusalem was destroyed. God did bring the people back as He promised He would. They rebuilt the temple walls, uh, the temple and the walls. We read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But Jesus brings this up in saying that you are still forsaken. Your house is still forsaken. Just as the, the walls of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and they were flattened, spiritually speaking, the city is still in that same place. So to be forsaken means to be forgotten and exposed. It's easy for an enemy to come in and conquer. So Jesus is saying they're still spiritually in need. They still need walls rebuilt and the temple rebuilt. They still need the presence of God. And then he ends, verse 35, with hope. He says, And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are still forsaken, but there is one who is coming. And he comes in the name of the Lord. This uses the Old Testament to show that what Jesus is doing is fulfilling all of those, the prophecies of the Old Testament. And this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, also points to later when Jesus does arrive in Jerusalem. So in Luke 19, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. It's what called, it's called the triumphal entry. Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey, and people take leaves and their coats and lay them on the ground, and they shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. So here Jesus is saying, You are still forsaken. You are like flattened. You've been conquered. Spiritually, you're still in need of a Savior, and that Savior is coming. So Jesus tells them that He would have gathered them, but they didn't want to. He says that they're still in that same helpless place, but the Savior is on His way. In this section, we witness God's plan to save His people, and that it's been His plan from the beginning. God's plan to rescue His people started at the fall. Even before that, started at creation. God's big plan focuses on Jesus' death on the cross. And His plan will still continue until all is set right, is made right in the new heaven and the new earth. This section is important for us today in one, seeing the, how amazing God is. To have this story going through the whole Old Testament and then we get to see Jesus fulfilling that as He makes His way to Jerusalem. As I thought about a way, how do we, what do we take away from this? What do we do with this? One, we marvel at God and we worship Him and praise Him. Another way is we want to be, we want to be those who understand God's big story. So the application for today is to get a biblical theology. Get a biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is just fancy for seeing God's salvation plan through the whole Bible. The Bible is not just a collection of abstract or unrelated books. The Bible tells the story of God redeeming, of rescuing His people who are separated from Him because of sin. So biblical theology is just the discipline 
of viewing the Bible from the perspective of God's big plan for His creation. So why is it important for us to have a biblical theology? Why should we have an understanding or a view of God's redemptive plan that goes all throughout Scripture? Well, for one thing, as Christians, we are now part of God's family. It's good for us to know our family history. In the Old Testament, we see our spiritual aunts and uncles doing really dumb things. But we see God's steadfast love to bring them back in, to forgive them, and to guide them. And this helps us because today we do really dumb things. And we need to know that God loves us and He is steadfast when we are not. So we can be confident that He loves us and that He is working in spite of the dumb things that we do. It's also super important for us to understand what's going on in the Old Testament because it was very important for the New Testament authors. Most, if not all, New Testament books reference the Old Testament in some way. They stand on it like a foundation. So part of doing the hard work of a disciple is reading and understanding God's big picture, seeing God's redemptive plan. As we do this, our passion for Jesus grows as we understand that He's been working this whole time to save us and others. So you may wonder, how do I get a biblical theology? How do I get this understanding? How can I see God's redemptive plan in Scripture? The best way is to read the Bible. Doing the hard work of reading the Bible. When I was in high school, I played sports. We had a coach who would give us the game plan. We thought it was going to be a long speech about what we were to do. He said, here's the plan, boys. We're going to score early and often. And that was it. We're going to score early and often. And it's hard to argue with that plan in any sport. If you score early and often, you're probably going to win. You're going to do okay. And that's what we want to do with reading the Bible. We're going to read early and often. So that's our game plan, is to read the Bible early and often. This might mean reading the Bible through in a year. There are a lot of plans out there that can help you read the Bible through in a year. You don't have to start, you don't have to wait until January to start. You can start now. Some Bible apps even have those reading plans built in. The ESV has a podcast where you can listen to the whole Bible in a year. They have those reading plans, but it's audio. It's a great way to spend your time in commute, to listen to the Word of God. And as we do that, we start to understand and see the big picture of what God's doing throughout Scripture. We get the overall story of what's going on. There's also other Bibles that can be read. There's, there's, Bible, uh, there's books on biblical theology. There's the big picture Bible. Uh, there's other, even kids' Bibles. The, the kids' Bibles I read with my children really help me to see because you get to see what God's doing uh, in, a, in a shorter time. And that helps to cultivate that biblical theology, understanding that God has been working to redeem His people, to rescue His people from the beginning of time. So let's get a biblical theology by reading our Bible early and often. So we've seen from this passage that we should be striving to enter through the narrow gate. We must not assume our salvation, but we want to do the hard work of a disciple. I want to mention that doing the hard work of a disciple is not what saves us. We're saved by faith in Jesus. But as those who are saved, 
when we are born again into God's family, that we want to do the work, the hard work of a disciple as we follow Jesus. It's a result of our salvation. And we look to God to empower us, to give us the strength to do that. So doing the hard work of a disciple means following Jesus closely. And also, discipling others, helping others as they follow Him too. Thanks be to God that Jesus was determined to complete His mission. It was the the design from the beginning. Jesus was focused to complete His mission. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Go to Jerusalem. Die for sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for coming to this world and finishing the mission of saving sinners from eternal death, saving us to eternal life with you, Jesus. God, it's by your grace that we can live before you, that we can strive to enter the narrow gate. We pray that we would do the hard work of a disciple with your strength and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.